As a Papuan Australian woman, I want to start this podcast by acknowledging that I am a settler on this land that I live, work and create on. I acknowledge there are ongoing native title cases on this land today due to the impacts of colonisation. I want to pay my respects to the many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of this country and to their elders past, present and emerging. Listeners, thanks for tuning in to part three in this episode with our cultural inclusion educators. Previously, we finished up by discussing what can happen when you create spaces where children are unable to connect with their ancestry and their family. Let's dive back in now. This trauma is carried with them as well. And if they don't have a community to work through that, and that community being their siblings, for this example, who do you work that out with? And will your foster parent know how to work with that will you be lucky enough to have a foster parent like the example cecilia shared who actually reaches out and makes that effort yeah and that'll be that that um youth that's in the detention centers you know they're always searching and they're the only place that they feel comfortable and safe is in prison that's where they're going to get a bed to sleep in. They're going to get food and they're going to have their own space. Mm. And on that point, if you had to make, because obviously you recommend um, different ways of interacting with community and working with these resources to educators, but if we were to look at it on a state and federal government level, what recommendations would you be making um, as women in your positions and women with your experience to these levels of government about the way that education can be informed by cultural knowledge um, and ancestry as well. It still comes back to that thing about ensuring that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are employed in these roles and that they're getting advice from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and not um, non-Indigenous people within their um, their departments because... Um, I had a, um, an interesting experience a few, a couple of months ago when I was in Canberra. I sat and I listened to um, a man that worked in um, agricultural mines and energy and he talked about his leadership journey and um, he, he was telling us that he was working with the department when the um, alcohol reforms was coming in to um, the Northern Territory and he said that he didn't actually like the decisions or the um, recommendations that he was making to the government at the time, but he did it because he felt that it was important that these things were put in place for the community. And um, that was really hard for me to sit and listen to because you know, one, I live in a remote community, I'm only new here, but I've lived in other remote communities and um, I see how hard it is to live in these communities and I see, I know how expensive it is to live and buy food as well. So to be, to have a, um, 
have a white person that earns probably $150,000 a year make a decision for people to be given a card that doesn't allow them to have cash and to be only able to use that card in a supermarket that may be an IGA or, um, you know, in that community, I don't feel is okay. I feel that there should be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, able to work in that space, but I also feel that it needs to be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that are from those communities, not not people that um, don't know what it's like to live in community, that have lived and um, been brought up in um, urban settings because they would not know and they cannot give advice for people that live in community. So I feel that government has to change the way that they enforce these sort of things. They need to change the way that they receive advice around these things. And they really need to be careful about the amount of funding that they're giving um, for these programs and projects. And we can look at closing the gap the initiative that has been going for, I think it's 13 or 14 years now. And it's still, we've still got gaps in early childhood education. In education, we've still got our youth um, taking up 100% 100 of the um, youth justice system in our jails. We've got families that are still losing their children and we've still got families that are living in overcrowded housing, not accessing medical um, support. So I feel there's lots in government that needs to change so that then we can filter that down into community because if our government doesn't change what they're doing and get off their high horse, well, then nothing's going to change for our people. We've been waiting 200 and something years now, so, you know, it's time that we've got a voice. And don't fit all the statistics to support your story. That's the other thing I think. Like, definitely, like, absolutely, you need to be listening to community and what community say. And who are you sitting in your office in Canberra or Melbourne or Sydney to tell people in remote communities how it's going to be when you've never set foot in that community and you don't know what that's like? Or you're sitting in your tower in Brisbane and you're not actually down on the ground talking to the early childhood services or to the families who are saying these spaces aren't safe for my children. Why aren't, you know, what are you doing to make make sure these educators know how to be with my children and and you know in I've been in projects where the department um, counts a figure um, that isn't a true reflection of what is actually happening so yeah we've got an increase in the numbers of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children turning up in our kindergartens yet it's counted as turning up in a kindergarten if that child is there for a a max, like the minimum amount of hours they have to be there in 12 months is four hours. Well, we know that four hours is not uh, uh, turning up. That's coming there and filling in an enrolment form and then never setting foot back in that space again. So that's not increasing your numbers. Don't congratulate yourselves over that. That just shows you how many people have filled in an enrolment form. Mm. Um, but, but you know, 
it suits their narratives. So that's what they say. And then we're called into services who are going, we don't know what to do when you're working with Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander families, or we want to get funding because we want to do better in this space. And then the funding body says, actually, you don't have Torres Strait Islander children in your service, therefore, or you don't have Aboriginal Torres uh, children in your service, or you don't have culturally diverse children in your service. So actually, you don't need this work. Mm. And, and our, my argument has always been, if you don't have Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander or culturally and linguistically diverse children in your service, then you're, there's, then you're doing something wrong. And just because those people aren't there, those families aren't there, doesn't mean you don't need to do it. It actually means your job is harder and you've got to work harder. It doesn't mean that they can't be ready for when those families come to their service. Mm. Yeah, and creating the culturally safe space, you know, opens that up as well. Yeah. I think when you go into um, that next level, um, you know, state and federal, that really it's about... Um, it's about respect and acknowledgement for me, and that's something I keep talking to educators about. When coming to a uh, coming from a place of respect, acknowledgement, understanding, then your your programs are more holistic. You know, the support you've budgeted for and and planned out for are more holistic, and um, and flexible as well. I think that's something you know we forget about because when you're working with Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander children, families, anything could happen. Anything could pop up at any time. Sorry, business, emergencies, family situations. So it's about that flexibility in any program. You know, having that opportunity to say now's not the time or we have to go somewhere else first, you know, meet with traditional owners first before jumping into a program. Um, Jackie brought up a couple of good points there about employees always, always employ Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and also, um, uh, you know, value and acknowledge those employees as well as multicultural and diverse employees as well. I think we don't value that enough in our sector and in any program. I think within Australia we don't value that enough. Um, you know, if English is your second language, you know, you're already sort of looked at as a step behind everyone else. Um and also, uh, yeah, Jackie raised a, a special point. I almost laughed at it when she said it because when you are in a remote, isolated community, everything is different. Everything is different from getting your food every day to getting to work every day to being able to afford fuel to go out in the boat to catch a feed. Like everything is actually quite different. And so many programs don't budget for that. So they don't budget for extra travel. They don't budget for emergency days, emergency trips, sorry business, um, you know, that it's going to cost me at least $1,000 or more to get in a helicopter to go to Murray Island, you know. Um, people don't budget for it. So then by the time a project comes to rolling out, there's no money left. There's no money to travel to those remote communities. There's no money to go back and, and meet with the traditional owners and check out what's actually going on in that community, um, you know, before rolling out a program. And then there's no funding for that wraparound care. 
So, you know, elders might have issues coming into the program for the day because they got no money for taxis, you know. They got no money for for breakfast. One conference we did, uh, Rhino, I don't think you were part of it in Townsville, they said, okay, everybody will will settle over on the hotel. You can all buy breakfast here at the hotel. When next door there was McDonald's. So, you know, those participants that came in from remote communities, you know, they're not going to spend $30, $40 on breakfast when they can go to McDonald's. And then, you know, we had this sort of standard that, you know, was frowned upon if you went and got fast food for breakfast before the conference, you know. And so, yeah, um, and so there was this there was this situation where the facilitators then felt like we have to pay for them to have a healthy breakfast at the hotel, you know, for the day. And, and no one budgeted that in, you know. We weren't going to get paid any extra for it because we paid for everything else that the company kept saying to us. So, you know, you really got to look at holistic uh, factors when you're planning any program, any delivery, uh, you know, and, and factor in, you know, be flexible to factor in these extra things that need to be accounted for and um, and supported if you want a really good holistic program uh, that's going to be successful and going to have good outcomes. I think that's something I see every day. So it's a little frustration of mine that I see and, um, you know, no money for no money for, you know, that holistic care and training for staff as well for sustainability. I think that's something a lot of programs lack. And so I'm talking about it all the time, like it's new news to people, but it's not new news. You need to train local people. You need to support them with their training and delivery. And um, and then there's other things along the way that you need to factor in and be flexible around. I agree, Cecilia. All of those things um, yeah. are often overlooked, and it's um, you know it's even when government have got that little extra um, money in their buckets that they want to get rid of. Oh. Don't yeah. don't go and quickly do these projects and then expect them to be rolled out in yeah. a couple yeah. of months because. Right. It can take 12 months or more to build those relationships and get things happening. Um, I feel that they waste a lot of money that could be better spent um, really targeting where we need to send it that will benefit our children and our families because um, by the time it gets to the children and the families, it's probably this much instead of this much. No, yeah. Yeah. Our masterclasses. You know, Jackie, hey, building real relationships, collaboration, you know, being respectful in your celebrations, in what you're doing at work. Like those are some of the key topics that everyone should be learning from and everyone should be learning about to have really successful programs. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. Yeah, and those stupid little end of financial year projects that they put out are just a band-aid for a moment so we can feel good and say, look, we did put this money into, like it feels so cynical about it. But it's been going, like it. it's here we are in 2021 and it's still happening. These, well, quick, we got this money, let's quickly put out this project. Or there's a project that's successful that really worked really well for three years. We're going to stop funding it now. (laughs) 
And, and, you know, that's why I felt so emotional when I saw that video of um, the first 1,000 days because how many times have we worked on a project and we've put our heart and soul into it and we know it works yeah. but then nothing happens. So when I saw that, I'm sitting there and I'm bawling my eyes out and my husband said, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I said, I said, I started this mm. and I'm not there and it's still happening. Like that was just a moment that I thought it can happen. It really can happen. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it can happen and it can be sustainable and and. But, yeah, often these projects are set up to be two steps forward, three steps forward, and then, yeah. I I had a friend who ran a hugely successful youth program in a remote community up in the Territory, and for three years there wasn't a single suicide in that community. So they – and then they defunded the project. (laughs) Of course you would. Because it's very much outcomes-based. It's like, oh, we fixed the problem. It's all good. We can stop funding it now. It's like, no, the the reason the program exists is because it has to continue. It can't, it's not because that's very much a Band-Aid thing. It's like, we fixed it. It's all good. It's finished now. And six months later they had their first suicide. Yeah, but I think the other thing around that is um, they, they start to cut corners first. Yeah. See, and what happens is that um, people actually yeah. put in over and above what they're even getting paid for. So, you know, they're taking advantage of the goodness of people's hearts and and um, their own values and beliefs. And then, you know, again, they'll just cut it mm-hmm. once they once they know that people are going to pick it up. They think it's and which fixed. which programs cost the most too. Hey, they're the first ones to go. There always are, yeah. There was one point where um, I was in front of the minister on TI, uh, you know, as a silent sort of protest because they were shutting down three childcare centres in the Torres Straits and they shut down three centres that were employing, you know, each centre employed nearly 10 staff each and they shut them down because it was costing them too much and they shut them down while all the TAFE, well, everyone was studying educators were all on ti doing a big um, residential program studying finishing off their cert three and diplomas advanced diplomas and they shut them down while the educators were here and not even in their own communities to protect their centers the government went out and said nah we're shutting you all down. And so I went to the minister when they came up and said, how can you do this? You're actually taking jobs away from community. You're actually letting, you know, the women parents out there have no no way to work because there's no childcare as well. You know, that how can you do this? <laughs> and, and the minister at the time said, oh, you know, um, I'm not the bank. I'm not the bank, Cecilia, but, you know, we'll investigate why and, you know, what's happened. And um, and the response was that, you know, they were set up as playgroups. So they had they'd met the community's need as a playgroup. It then evolved into childcare, but there was no extra funding for it. So they had to cut it. They had to let it go. 
And there's all these qualified educators on these outer islands now with no jobs. Some of them, a couple of them have moved into the health sector, but, you know, there are childcare centres and there are all these educators out there with nothing now. No more careers, no more opportunity. And then all these parents that are now job seekers with no jobs because there are no jobs in remote communities. There are very, very few. All of that money that they paid to get those people trained up and people mm. going up onto the island to train them and get them all um, qualified um, qualified mm. to go into those areas and then they just shut it down. Born. Makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe I we've been doing it for too long. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we're getting old. <laughs> we're getting old and cynical. <laughs> but I think, you know. We're just advocates. Your, <laughs> we're advocates. <laughs> yeah. Just your story there, um, Cecilia, about that. Um, it also reminds me of the communities that the government um, closed down. They just went in and turned their power and water turned off. water off. Yeah, because it was too expensive to continue to uh, keep those towns running and Nobody knew about that. So nobody knows in this mainstream urban areas about the childcare centres that were closed down on TI. They don't know about the um, communities being turned off, you know, their water and um, electricity being turned off. It, media only really lets people know about what they want them to know about. I feel that um, they've got too much power and the government feeds them what they want them to let people know about. And I feel that um, there's got to be a change in that as well. Yeah, yeah. As our conversation was coming to a close, I asked these ladies to share a story that really stood out to them about the power that cultural inclusion awareness has in the education sector. Here are some of those stories. There are so many stories that I have about why it's important. But one one story that I always think about um, was um, only happened to me probably two years ago. And um, I was in a service, like, like services uh, legislatively and ethically required to ensure that they are embedding cultural perspectives in their programs so that every child feels a sense of belonging and that their culture and everything that is who they are is valued and celebrated. And I was in a service where there was this child, it was her first morning um, in the centre and she was a culturally and linguistically diverse child who spoke another language at home. And I was, so she was there when I was there in the morning and I recognised that feared look on her face, you know, mum, dad's just left. She was trying really hard to be brave. She, you could see the tears on her eye, you know, on her eyelids, like like she wasn't crying, but she was like, and, you know, breathing really heavily, being brave, holding this educator's hand. And this other educator turned up for her shift and she kind of came racing in and she said, oh, I, I heard that 
the child's this child has started is she here yet and the educator said oh yeah she's right here and this educator dropped to her knees and began speaking to this child in that child's language and that little girl just went like took in a breath breathed out immediately started talking to the educator talking back to her in language and Then the educator turned and in language called another child that was in the playground over. And and I'd been watching this group of girls and this little girl in that group looking over, just kind of aware of this new girl in the group. And so then that little girl left the group she was with and she comes over. And in language, this educator is talking to the new child and this child. And there's obviously in introductions happening and this is her name, you know, I'm assuming names were given. And then the two little girls, and like the new, the new little girl was just like, <gasps> you know, the, the body language changed. She grabbed this girl's hand and they, they went off to play. And it was just this moment where there's someone here, understand me, Um, you know, it was language, it was culture, it was friendship, it was all of that. And I was just standing there going, oh, my God. (laughs) And I was crying and didn't realise I was crying until this whole interaction finished and the little girl went off and then that educator stood up and went, oh, you know, we speak the same language. I mean, we knew that by now that they speak. (laughs) And I just went, oh, my, this is why, this is the reason why you need to embrace, like, can you, like, yeah, it was just, there was nothing else to be said. It, it, it was a, the perfect illustration of when educators speak the languages of these new children, that's settling in. Like we just jumped forward two weeks in terms of that child being settled in that service. And in 10 years of going in and out of childcare centres, that's the first time I'd, I'd seen that happening, like just so, so I knew it was possible because I'd seen it in my work in Darwin, but here it was right there uh, unfolding in front of my eyes. And I was there to talk about how do you make your programs more culturally inclusive. I didn't need to say anything else. I just went, this, this is why, what you just witnessed. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's perfect, isn't it? You go, Cecilia, you've got got all the emotion happening. Yeah, you're making me cry. (laughs) Yeah. That's so beautiful, though. That's that's everything all in one, isn't it? And it's, you know, it's it's when you walk into a place and, yeah, and those, those amazing centres that work really hard on this, you know, that's our reward, I think, you know, that's our reward for sharing our passion, sharing what we know, uh, teaching what we can teach um, to create this inclusive experience for that child for that family you know and and yeah it's it's all those little stories of when you go to services and you know walking in and you hear your language being spoken you hear your songs you see your flag you know it's it's all those tiny little moments um i think that give us give us strength as educators to go on and and to know that what we are doing is making a difference in the sector because that's all we 
every every child to feel, to see, to experience, eh? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I harp on about displaying the flags all the time (laughs) to educators. And it's funny how many workplaces don't have them up, isn't it? Mm. Or, Or once you're actually aware of that, when you walk around new towns and see all of those things that make you feel like you belong. Um, yeah, that's that's all the little moments, all in one story, Rane. Beautiful. For me, it's all of the things that you've both spoken about. It's, um, I suppose, when you walk into a service and you just see culture that's woven um, from the moment you get out of the car and, you know, it's in the foyer, it's in the classroom, it's... Um, in the outside area and and kids can go between the inside and outside depending on what how they're feeling on that day um and it doesn't matter whether they're inside or outside they've got educators that are there to support them but they're not there um telling them what to do or planning what they need to do they're just there um when needed and that's what I think that's what educators need that's what their role is it's it's just about being there providing that um that safe and and um inclusive environment and it is about children and educators really immersing themselves in in the outdoor spaces not with resources that we buy from shops but the resources that we can find within Mother Earth because um, she's got so much there for us to to look at and explore, um, to touch, to smell, to taste. You know, there's all of those things that our children and our educators can learn from. Um, but then our children are taking that home to their parents and they're teaching their parents what they've taught that what they've been taught or what they've learnt it within their program that day. Um, I love hearing those stories from from educators that I think we had one the other day um, from an educator who said that their daughter had gone that a daughter had gone home to her parents and. Um, started speaking the language and was doing the acknowledgement to country and the parent came in and wanted to know more about that because she wanted to understand it and she uh, understand what her daughter was talking about and, you know, the joy of the educator in explaining it and um, having that opportunity to share what the child had learnt. And that was a non-Indigenous mother of an unindigenous child. So I feel that in this early childhood space, um, we are making change, we're driving change. And I feel that um, we're driving it because we're educating the educators who are educating their children, who are educating their parents and their families. Um, so I feel that that's why we don't have racism probably in our faces like this anymore. I feel that people want to move away from that and I think Australia Day is a great example of that. 
you know, Australia Day is not celebrated for a piss up and for everybody just to get drunk anymore. It's celebrated because people are celebrating our survival um, and they want to be a part of it and they want to know more. So I really feel that early childhood is um, changing the way that education looks for children, um, not only for who we are and where we come from. I suppose the next thing for Cecilia Rano and I and probably for connecting the dots is actually start tackling schools because I don't think they're doing that well. And I think that our babies are going from early childhood to prep and thinking, oh, my God, I want to go back to kindy yeah, or yeah, I want yeah. to go back to the long daycare yeah, yeah. because it's not an enjoyable space to be in. And I think programs or the potential for programs like what we do need to be appropriately funded so that we can appropriately do the work appropriately but we can bring, you know, pay for elders to be present and and pay them properly to be participants in these programs, to work alongside schools because this isn't a journey that's meant to be done on your own. It's a journey that's meant to be done as a community, as a collectivist group, but we're not funded to be able to do that. And we need to be paid for, you know, our knowledge and what we bring to these educators because even, you know, the stuff that we're doing now, I just don't feel that the government is really serious about um, what they're paying for us to do this work. I think we're doing their job for them and I feel that's got to change. Yep. Tanaki Vataheria, Big Essel and Yawar. Thank you for listening and sending my love and big thanks again to Jackie, Cecilia and Mum for giving me your time, for sharing this conversation space with me and also for sharing your wisdom. Be sure to tune in to episode two and the rest of the series. The feature article associated with this podcast will be released in November during their conference in the Torres Strait Islands. Be sure to follow all of these ladies' social media channels and bookmark their websites and also share this podcast podcast episode around. Until next month, this is Our Women, Our Stories.